Welcome back to the Long Acres Finance channel, where the focus is on dividend growth investing. Today I wanted to tell you why I believe dividend growth investing is the best dividend strategy to follow for long-term results. I'll be referencing data from a Hartford Fund study titled The Power of Dividends, Past, Present, and Future. There's a link in the description of this episode to the full study if you'd like to read it yourself. The study analyzed dividend investing from a few vantage points, and I want to begin by talking about the section found on page 6, titled Do Dividend Policies Affect Stock Performance? A study performed by Ned Davis Research looked at the average returns of companies based on their dividend policy. Companies were initially split into two subgroups, based on whether or not they paid a dividend during the previous 12 months. This segregated the data into dividend payers and dividend non-payers. The dividend payers group was further divided into three more subgroups, dividend growers and initiators, no change in dividend policy, and dividend cutters and eliminators. Each dividend payer was assigned to one of these subgroups based on their dividend policy from the prior 12 months. So basically, if a company maintained a dividend growth policy, they remained in the dividend growers and initiators subgroup. If a company stopped raising its dividend, they were moved into the no change in dividend policy subgroup. And if a company cut or eliminated its dividend, they were moved into the dividend cutters and eliminators subgroup. Between 1973 and 2021, the dividend growers and initiators subgroup had the best average annual return of 10.68%. The dividend payer subgroup, that includes all dividend paying companies, regardless of their dividend policy, had the second best average annual return of 9.6%. The no change in dividend policy subgroup ranked third overall, with an average annual return of 7.08%. The dividend non-payer subgroup ranked fourth overall, with an average annual return of 4.79%. And the dividend cutters and eliminators subgroup performed the worst, with an average annual return of minus 0.46%. The study compared these results to an equal-weighted S&P return, which was 8.2% during the same time period. This means that the dividend payers and dividend growers and initiators, on average, were the best subgroups of stocks to invest in during this 48-year window. There is some merit to comparing the results to an equal-weighted S&P 500 index opposed to the actual index itself. The actual index is weighted by market cap, meaning that larger companies make up a greater portion of the index compared to smaller companies. For example, today the top 5 companies in the S&P 500 index make up a little more than 20% of the entire index. If the authors of the study didn't place any emphasis on market caps in their analysis of dividend payers versus dividend non-payers, it would not be a good comparison to a market cap-weighted index. The average annual return for the market cap-weighted S&P 500 index between 1973 and 2021 was 12.34%, which is much higher than the 8.2% average return for the equal-weighted S&P 500 index. But like I just mentioned, comparing the actual S&P 500 to this study isn't really an apples-to-apples comparison. Suffice it to say, the study points to the fact that investing in dividend-paying companies was better than investing in companies that did not pay a dividend. And investing in companies that had a dividend growth policy was better than simply investing in companies that paid a dividend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But to better display the power of dividends and compounding, we should consider the fact that 84% of the total return of the S&P 500 index between 1960 and 2021 is attributed to reinvested dividends and the compounding effect they create. If we break down the impact of dividends by decade since 1930, the contribution to the total return of the S&P from dividends was 40%. 
Not every decade had the same impact from dividends. For example, in the 1940s, dividends played a much larger role on total returns, contributing 67% of the return during this decade. And in the 2020s, dividends only added 12% to the total return. The study derives a correlation between the impact dividends played on total returns to the strength of overall returns during the given decade. And that correlation was that dividends play a much larger role on total returns during periods of time where overall returns are generally below average. During the 1940s, 60s, and 70s, total returns were lower than 10%, and the contribution to total returns from dividends averaged 61%. In the 1950s, 80s, and 90s, total returns were above 15%, and dividends played a much smaller role, contributing only 25% of the total return. With a lot of news now proclaiming that we are set for a decade of below-average returns, we may again see dividends play a larger role on total returns compared to the prior decade. Another interesting observation made in the study is proof that chasing yield is not the optimal dividend investing strategy. This study was performed by Wellington Management that broke up the universe of dividend-paying stocks into five quantiles based on their dividend payouts. The highest-yielding companies were placed in the first quantile, and the lowest-yielding companies were placed in the fifth quantile, with the rest broken up into three more quantiles in between. The study measured a period of 91 years between 1930 and 2021, and the outcome showed that the second quantile, which are high-yielding stocks but not the highest-yielding stocks, performed the best. The second quantile outperformed the S&P 500 for 7 out of these 10 decades, while the first and third quantile only outperformed the S&P 500 for 6 out of 10 decades. If we combine the compounded annual returns for all time periods, the second quantile gives us a return of 16.25%, compared to just 14.81% for the first quantile. Quantiles 4 and 5, the two lowest-yielding groups, also have returns better than quantile number 1. This may suggest that investing in the highest yielding companies has not been a winning strategy in terms of total return. Judging the future based on results from 50 or 100 years ago may not be the best approach to take. So if we look at just the last few decades, aside from the lost decade starting in 2000, the first quantile had the worst compounded returns compared to all other quantiles. In the 2010s, the third quantile performed the best, which are companies that pay an average dividend yield. And in the 2020s, the 4th and 5th quantile performed significantly better than the top 3 quantiles. Granted, we only have 2 years of data for this decade, and the results would likely be significantly different if we incorporate 2022 into the study. The study suggests that one reason why the highest quantile performed weaker than the second quantile is that high dividend payouts are often unsustainable. A key metric to measure dividend sustainability is the payout ratio, that shows the relationship between the dividend rate and earnings per share. The average payout ratio for the first quantile between 1979 and 2021 was 74%, whereas the second quantile had an average payout ratio of just 41%, a sizable difference. A useful metric to keep in your back pocket while researching dividend stocks in the future. There are a lot of investors that dislike dividend investing, suggesting it is a subpar strategy for long-term results. There's even a theory about the irrelevance of dividends that is pretty interesting. The theory essentially suggests that a dividend has no effect on a company's stock price and it can actually hurt a company's competitive advantage. The theory also suggests that since markets perform efficiently, a dividend payout will lead to a decline in the stock price equivalent to the dividend amount. This is actually true to some extent. If we believe that the value of a company is equivalent to the discounted future cash flows it can generate, then when a company depletes its cash position to pay out a dividend, the future cash flows shrink by this amount. To further extrapolate this cash movement, one can suggest that this is a tax-inefficient movement of money, since dividends are considered taxable income, whereas selling shares of a stock to generate cash flow is also a taxable event. It is up to each individual investor to decide when and how much they wish to sell. 
However, studies have shown that stocks that pay dividends often increase in price by the amount of the dividend as the X-date approaches, which can offset the share price decline on the X-dividend date. One additional argument proponents of the theory make is that oftentimes companies will take on debt to meet their dividend obligations, because cutting or eliminating a dividend may have detrimental effects on their share price. While this is true, it's also not the norm across the universe of dividend-paying companies, and investors can easily figure out who these companies are. I believe that dividend growth is a great investing strategy to follow for long-term investors. But not all dividend-paying companies are equal, nor will they produce the same results in the future. Finding attractive dividend yields is a key metric to focus on. But don't invest purely based on yields, and don't chase a high yield at any cost. You want to find companies that have long histories of dividend growth, and ones that manage their dividend policy in a smart way. A low payout ratio and a history of growing revenue and earnings can indicate the overall health of a business. Do you think dividend growth is a good investing strategy? Let me know in the comments why or why not.